0: This is a recording of Centered on Christ, the Book of Enos Possibly Structured Chiastically by Stephen Kent Ehat, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Stephen Kent Ehat. Abstract The Book of Enos is considered to be a short one-chapter treatise on prayer, yet it is more. Close examination of its text reveals it to be a text structurally centered on Christ and the divine covenant Enos seeks and obtains from him, a covenant to preserve the records of the Nephites for the salvation of the Lamanites. Enos prays not only for his own remission of sins, but also for the salvation both of his own people, the Nephites, and also of the Lamanites. He yearns in faith that the Lord will preserve the records of his people for the benefit of the Lamanites. This article outlines a possible overall chiastic structure of verses 3 through 27, as well as a centrally situated smaller chiasm of verses 15 and the first half of verse 16, which focus on Christ and his covenant with Enos. The voice of the Lord speaks to the mind of Enos seven times, and the proposed chiastic structure of the text is meaningfully related to those seven divine communications. We have the Book of Mormon in our day because of the faithful prayers and faithful labors of prophets like Enos, and because of the promises they received from Christ whose covenant to preserve the records is made the focal point at the center of the Enos text. End of Abstract Enos, like his uncle Nephi, manifestly desired to highlight in his writings his yearning that the written word of the Lord bless God's children. Nephi earlier had written that he knew that the Lord God would consecrate his own prayers for the gain of his people, and that the words which he had written in weakness would be made strong unto them persuading them to do good 2 nephi chapter 33 verse 4 we usually pay due attention to enos's description of his struggle in prayer by which he sought and obtained a remission of his sins enos chapter 1 verses 3 to 8 when we think of the book of enos our first impression, generally, is that it is a treatise on prayer, and in that we are correct. The book is a book about prayer, yes, but prayer that seeks more than Enos' own personal redemption. He first writes that he intends to tell of the wrestle he had before God, before he received a remission of his sins, verse 2. But by verse 8, he has received forgiveness. So why verses nine to 27? We should note that the Lord's statements to him, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, thou shalt be blessed, go to, thy faith hath made thee whole, verses five and eight, constitute the first of seven divine communications from the Lord into his mind. The first communication is a twofold response in verses 5 and 8, which answer Enos' prayer and supplication for his own personal redemption, verses 3 to 8. The second responds to his struggle in prayer for the redemption of the Nephites, verses 9 to 10. And the third answers his prayer and responds to his and his own people's toils for redemption of the lamanites and the preservation of the nephite record for their benefit verses 11 to 14 the central communication from the lord states the lord's covenant with enos that the nephite records will be preserved for the benefit of the lamanites verses 15 and the first half of verse 16 the book is structured on three prayers uttered by enos For his own redemption, for the redemption of the Nephites, and for redemption of the Lamanites. Quoted seven times in the book, the Lord answers Enos' prayer, verses 5, 8, 10, 12, 15, 18, and 27, and covenants to preserve the Nephite records, verse 16. After introductory verses 1 and 2, Enos apparently structured verses 3 to 27 of his text on the three accounts of the Lord's voice to his mind. 1. The Lord's answer to his own struggle in prayer for his own personal redemption, verses 3 to 8 and 25 to 27, respectively, at the beginning and end of the book. 2. The Lord's answer to his struggle in prayer on behalf of the Nephites, verses 9 to 10 and 21 to 24, found in text just following the beginning and just before the end of the book. 3. The Lord's promised fulfillment of Enos' hope for the redemption of the Lamanites by the preservation of the Nephites' writings, verses 11 to 14, and the second half of verse 16 through verse 20 in text found immediately before and after the center of the book. And four, Enos' prayer, which secures the Lord's answering promise that the Nephite record would be preserved. Verses 15 and the first half of 16 at the center of the book. This seems to represent classic concentric structuring, commonly referred to as chiasmus. A reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas in a text, with a meaningful climactic turning point in the middle, after which the reversed repetition begins. Chiasmus is a term that refers generally both to a chiasm, with two matching words, phrases, or ideas at the central turning point of a text, and to a concentric structure, with one word, phrase, or idea at that central turning point. Either of the two structures can be termed chiasmus, though the distinction is often made. The book of Enos is concentric in structure, with one central element at the center of the chapter, an element itself also that forms a central chiasm in the text, a central chiasm that focuses on Christ. This present study hypothesizes that Enos composed his text with a chiastic plan in mind. It is considered here that Enos expresses his message by means of a thematic concentric structure, seeking thereby to draw attention to the following central point. Knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve his own people's records for the benefit of the Lamanites, Enos cries unto the Lord God continually, For the Lord has said unto him, Whatsoever thing ye shall ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive in the name of Christ, ye shall receive it. And Enos had faith, and he did cry unto God that he would preserve the records, Verses 15 and the first half of 16. In this short book, Enos prays for his own personal redemption. He prays for the redemption of his own people, the Nephites. He prays for the redemption of the Lamanites. And he prays that the Nephite writings be preserved for the benefit of the Lamanites. And God covenants with him that the records will be preserved in answer to both his own prayer and the prayers of his forefathers. As John Welch has emphasized, quote, A burden of persuasion rests on anyone asserting that a passage is chiastic, end quote. And, quote, Anyone who claims that a passage is chiastic should be able to prove it. This paper represents an attempt to shoulder that burden in the writings of Venus on the small plates of Nephi. The proposed overall structure of the Book of Venus will be identified by reference to the concepts and ideas reflected in the complete text of the book. Second. The paired sections so identified will be analyzed, both to note correspondences between sections and to describe repetitions and possible occasional rhetorical structures perceived within sections. Third, the elements that serve to give unity and progression to the paired sections will be analyzed. And fourth, some gleanings will be expressed based on the proposed presence of chiasmus in the text. The Overall Structure of the Book of Enos No published attempt to illustrate a chiastic structure that covers the entire Book of Enos seems yet to have appeared. The only attempts to discern one or more chiastic passages within the book appear to be by Donald W. Perry in The Book of Mormon Text Reformatted According to Parallelistic Patterns and by the late H. Clay Gorton in A New Witness for Christ, Chiastic Structures in the Book of Mormon. The proposals advanced by Perry and Gorton at least suggest that the principle of chiasmus apparently was known to Enos. In 1981, referring to the books of Jerm and Omni, Welch observed that they were, quote, composed during a dark age in Nephite history, which was marked by political stagnation and little or no literary activity. End quote. And the books of Jacob, Enos, Jerem, and Omni, he added, quote, manifest virtually no chiasmus. End quote. Chiasmus and antimetabole generally, though they are interrelated, chiasmus and antimetabole are defined differently and manifest themselves differently. Defined broadly and inclusively. Chiasmus is the repetition of ideas in inverted order, or the repetition of grammatical structures in inverted order. Strictly speaking, antimetabole is the repetition of words in inverted order. Chiasmus and antimetabole are interrelated, and both chiasmus and antimetabole commonly form part of rhetorical patterns within texts of various lengths. But the distinction between chiasmus, strictly defined, based on a reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas, and antimetabole, strictly defined, based on a reversal in the sequence of repeated words and phrases, is an important distinction in analyzing lengthier texts. Some analysts propose chiastic patterns for very large texts by reviewing repeated words and phrases reversed in the sequence of their repetition over the entire lengthy text, without reviewing repeated ideas that are reversed in their repetition over that text. Because the distinction is important to the analysis, I will discuss it but because a full explanation of it is detailed and would be beyond the aim of this paper and a distraction if presented at this point, it is set forth in an appendix to this paper. Chiasms are said to be of two types. On the one hand, simple, basic, short, grammatical, or so-called microchiasms, and on the other hand, complex, lengthier, structural, large-scale, or so-called macrochiasms. At its simplest, chiasmus is represented as the reversed repetition of only four elements, A, B, B, A, with each element composed of a word or short phrase, as in each of the following three chiasms in the text of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, from which the word chiasmus derives, each showing the reversed repetition of words referred to as antimetaboly. The X, representing the Greek letter chi, from which the word chiasmus derives, reading each line from left to right. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Each of the above three microchiasms is an ABBA chiasm, and each, strictly speaking, is antimetaboly, showing a reversal in the sequence of repeated words, such as evil, good, good, evil. In one study, Kenneth E. Bailey limits the term chiasmus to the simple four-element ABBA form, while stating that in his study, the term chiasmus, quote, will be preserved for precise reference to any occurrence of a true chiasmus of four terms in an ABBA structure, end quote, adding, quote, obviously, when there are more than four terms, the crossed form of the figure disappears, end quote. Structures beyond what Bailey terms a four-element true chiasmus are to be termed inverted parallelism, a designation Bailey attributes to John Jebb. The point is that Bailey and some other authors sometimes use the term chiasmus only in a restricted sense, limiting the term to four-element structures, and they refer to longer structures as inverted or introverted parallelism. Most others use the term chiasmus more broadly to include both the four element form and all other inverted parallelism forms, including what John Breck refers to as the three element chiastically structured tricolon ABA, or what Neil R. LaRoe refers to as the strict ABBA chiasmus or what Bill Camden refers to as the four element ABBA form and the longer introverted forms such as ABCBA or such as ABCDEFEDCBA e, e, and so forth. The chiasm that will be discussed below is a lengthier a, B, C, D, e, D C B A macrochiasm, A concentric structure with one central element, E, formed by reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas that span the 22 verses of the text of Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, the parable of the two sons, as examined by John W. Welch. Because the ideas that form each of the elements of the ABCDEDCBA D, e, D, macrochiasm are themselves conveyed by words, the reversed repetition of the ideas is characterized also by the repetition of some words used in conveying those ideas. The ideas are represented by labels, headings, or descriptions authored by Welch, accurately founded on the underlying text itself. Each statement of an idea is given an alphabetic label and each statement of an idea in the first half of the text is indented from the left margin the same distance as its corresponding statement in the second half of the text. Thus the idea conveyed in element A is shown to correspond to the idea conveyed in element A prime, the idea in B to that in B prime, the idea in C to the idea in C prime and the idea in D to that in D prime. In examining the parable of the two sons, Welch identifies both a reversal in the sequence of the repeated ideas, and also the repetition of some of the words and phrases, including quotations of and citations to the Greek language of the original, as seen in his elements C, D, D prime, and C prime. Here is the chiastic pattern Welch proposes. Element A. One son takes his inheritance. Conversation between father and son. Verses 11 to 12. Element B. One son goes out. His conduct consisting of squandering. Verses 13 to 16. Element C. The well-being of the father's servants is recalled. Quote, I perish, apalumai, verse 17. Element D. I will say, quote, I have sinned, end quote. verses 18 and 19. Central element E. At the point of crisis, the father runs to meet his son. And is compassionate. Verse 20. Element D prime. The son says, quote, I have sinned, end quote. Verse 21. Element C prime. The father instructs the servants to make well. The lost, Apollos, is found. Verses 22 to 24. Element B prime. One son refuses to go in. His conduct, consisting of not forgiving, verses 25 to 30. And element A prime, one son is promised his inheritance. Conversation between father and son, verses 31 to 32. Although the definitions of chiasmus generally pertain to elements within two sentences, in rhetoric, chiasm is an inversion of order in the symmetrical parts of two sentences, forming an antithesis or constituting a parallel, the term generally is applied to the balanced inversion of words, sentence, pericopes, passages, and lengthier spans of text. Indeed, Prose scriptural texts, like Genesis and Samuel, for example, are said to be composed of a system of systems that consist of 12 levels of signification. The levels being sounds, syllables, words, phrases, clauses, sentences, sequences, speeches, scene parts, scenes, acts, sections, cycles, and books or compositions. And poetic structural texts, like Isaiah and Job, for example, are said to be composed of 11 such levels, consisting of sounds, syllables, words, phrases, half-verses, cola, verses, strophes, stanzas, poems, sections, groups of songs, and collections or books. And while the term antimetaboly may be used to refer to the feature as it appears in Greek texts, but not the feature as it appears in Hebrew texts, the feature of the reversal in the sequence of repeated words in short texts is in fact manifest in all literatures, occurring even down to the reversed repetition of sounds. Generally, however, antimetaboly often is considered a subgroup of chiasmus and the term chiasmus often is used to refer to both forms of reversed repetition, both of ideas, chiasmus, and of words, (antimetaboly). And it is always possible that an analyst's subjective judgment intervenes when the analyst's own words are used to describe the ideas constituting the chiastic elements of a text. Thus, the technical distinction between antimetabole, reversed repetition of words, and chiasmus, reversed repetition of ideas, can be used in evaluating repetitions in texts. Some simple examples of antimetabole are these. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. This statement represents the reversed repetition of words, but not of ideas, for only one idea is conveyed, or technically only two interrelated ideas. Another example of antimetaboly ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. This manifests two different ideas, but not a reversed repetition of two ideas. Rather, it is only the words that are repeated and reversed. Again, therefore, technically, this is only an albeit considered to be a subset of chiasmus, where generally examples of antimetaboly are also called chiasmus. Indeed, the example of chiasmus from Isaiah cited earlier is part of this subgroup of chiasmus known as antimetabole, with three chiasms in that text. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Sometimes, those who analyze texts cite only to the reversed repetition of words to propose that a passage is chiastic. These proposed chiasms are said to manifest linguistic, verbal, language, grammatical, semantic, morphological, syntactical, lexical, or phonological parallelism. For example, the following concentric structure is evident in the text of Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 27-28 showing a reversal in the sequence of repeated words and short phrases. Element A, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, Element B, arise and save us. Element C, but where are thy gods that thou hast made? Element B prime, let them arise if they can save thee. Element A prime, in the time of thy trouble. Note that the Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 27 and 28 chiasm, strictly speaking, a concentric structure, because it has one middle element rather than two, partakes mostly of antimetaboly, the reversed repetition of words or short phrases. Alternatively, analysts sometimes cite a reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas. These proposed chiasms are said to manifest conceptual, structural, Thematic content or aesthetic parallelism. One such conceptual chiasm, for example, is that identified for the forty verses of Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 11. Element A rebuking questions, element B bestowal of the Spirit, element C faith sonship, element D faith law. Element E, promise, law. Element E prime, law, promise. Element D prime, law, faith. Element C prime, sonship, faith. Element B prime, bestowal of the spirit. Element A prime, rebuking question. Scholars often analyze proposed chiastic patterns in texts in light of both words and ideas. Welch's analysis of the Parable of the Two Sons, discussed earlier, is an example of that sort of analysis over a text of 22 verses. Other similarly lengthy spans of text may be analyzed in light of both ideas and words, such as with the 22 verses, forming the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 to 23, as proposed by John Breck to be a conceptual chiasm, quoted and diagrammed below. Breck points to repeated keywords and key phrases within each of the identified elements of the proposed chiasm, elements identified by reference to the text itself. Analysts will often quote from the text in its original language if it is available. As shown below, Breck uses labels and paraphrases to characterize the textual units of the proposed chiasm. By the use of italic font, Breck also identifies the key words and key phrases within each of the textual units. Those words and phrases are, of course, most relevant because the main ideas of each element are, are based in large part upon those words and phrases. Element A. The Lord causes Joseph to prosper in his master's house. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. Verses two and three, skipping to the bottom of the text at element A prime, because the Lord was with him, Joseph prospers even in prison. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Verse twenty-three B. Back to the earlier part of the chiasm, element B. Joseph is given all responsibility because he has found favor in Potiphar's sight. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And having him, he had no concern for anything but the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. Verses 4-6 to And skipping to the second-to-last element of the chiasm. Element B prime. Joseph is given all responsibility because the Lord was with him and showed him his steadfast love. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care. Verses 21 to 23a. Back to the third element of the chiasm. Element C. Joseph's righteous refusal. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Lo, having me, my master, has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie with her, or to be with her, verses 7 to 10. Now to the third to last element of the chiasm. Element C prime. The woman's self-serving lie leads to Joseph's imprisonment. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to insult me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment with me and fled out of the house. When his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now to the two central elements. Element D. The innocent Joseph flees the seductress. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Verses 11 to 12. Element D prime. The woman impugns his innocence with her lie. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried. He left his garment with me and fled and got out of the house. Verses 13 to 15. In assessing the possible presence of what Brecht proposes as a conceptual chiasm, I do not suggest that such a large structure is an example of antimetaboly, the reversed repetition of words and phrases. To be sure, the text does manifest repeated words and phrases, but not a reversal in the sequence of the repeated words themselves. If the text is chiastic, it is so because of repeated themes and ideas reversed in the sequence of their repetition. It is not chiastic because of any reversal in the sequence of the repeated words and phrases themselves. And whether, for example, the labels for C and C' prime correlate to each other is open for analysis, as also whether the appearance of the word garment, not only in D and D' prime but also in C' prime but not in C, works against the proposed chiasm. But generally and this is the point here, such a text should not be analyzed as if it were antimetaboly. If a proposed chiasm exists at all, it is built on ideas and must be analyzed as such. I address the details of this distinction in the appendix. One final preliminary note about the fine distinction between antimetaboly and chiasmus. The distinction is most often ignored when the terms are used to describe chiasms with little harm done to the discussion. And references to instances of antimetabole generally use the word chiasmus when discussing such instances. For example, without using the word antimetabole, Niels Lund includes a description of antimetabole as part of his definition of the term chiasm. Quote, "According to its Greek origin, The term chiasm designates a literary figure or principle, which consists of a placing crosswise of words in a sentence. The term is used in rhetoric to designate an inversion in the order of words or phrases which are repeated or subsequently referred to in the sentence. Similarly, referring to the short poems in Jeremiah, Jack R. Lundbaum observes that, in Hebrew poetry, chiasmus is a syntactic structure at base, which inverts normal word order, end quote. Lundbaum thus describes a feature that, strictly speaking, typifies antimetabole, even though he is using the word chiasmus, appropriately so, because he and most all others today use chiasmus to refer also to antimetabole. In using the terms chiasmus and antimetabole in their strict senses, however, the former referring to the introverted repetition of ideas or grammatical structures, and the latter referring to introverted repetition of words or phrases, one can say that antimetabole is manifest generally in the simple, basic, short, introverted repetitions, and chiasmus is manifest both in the simple, short, introverted repetitions and in the complex, lengthier, large-scale, complex, structural, or macro forms. And on this account it is noteworthy to observe that keywords and key phrases that help to define what the ideas are for corresponding elements of an overall chiasm in a longer text may or may not themselves be significant to other parallelistic patterns which may appear within those elements conversely, some keywords and key phrases that help define some of the proposed chiastic patterns which may appear within any given element of an overall chiasm may possibly not serve as keywords and phrases in the makeup of the larger structure over the lengthy text. Proposed overall structure of the book of Enos. The following depicts the full text of verses three to twenty seven of the book of Enos proposing a seven-part concentric A, B, C, D, C prime, B prime, A prime, conceptual chiasm. If the proposed pattern manifests conceptual chiasmus, at least it can be said it is not antimetaboly. It is a reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas or concepts, not repeated words, that forms the proposed concentric structure. Caution is warranted here, of course, as noted by one charitable anonymous reviewer of this present paper. Quote, there is a real risk when assessing conceptual chiasms and other organizing structures for the proposed structure to be as much a projection of the discoverer's proclivities as the actual sources. End quote. The proposal below based on the very text of the book itself, should be read in light of what the text itself says. Each element of the proposed conceptual chiasm is founded on the text that describes the efforts, or struggling, of Enos in prayer, as he seeks salvation for himself, element A, for the Nephites, element B, and for the Lamanites, element C. The text centers element D, on his securing the promise of the Lord that he will preserve the records of the Nephites for the benefit of the Lamanites. The first three elements of the proposed conceptual chiasm, A, B, and C, are said here to be based on the three communications by the Lord to the mind of Enos, verses 5 and 8, verse 10, and verse 12. And the last three conceptual elements of the chiasm, elements C prime B prime and A prime correspond in reverse sequence with the earlier three but as the reviewer notes quote the problem with proposing an ancient abcdc prime B prime A prime structure is one the human propensity to see patterns in everything including Harry Potter and Star Wars and two the fact that Enos is not available to confirm or deny, end quote. With those cautionary thoughts in mind, the text of Enos himself is presented with only topical guideposts attendant. Element A, Enos's personal redemption, verses 3 through 8. Behold, I went to hunt beasts in the forests, And the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart, and my soul hungered, and I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him. Yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee. And thou shalt be blessed. And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie. Wherefore, my guilt was swept away. And I said, Lord, how is it done? And he said unto me, Because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen. And many years pass away before he shall manifest himself in the flesh. Wherefore, go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. Element B, Redemption of the Nephites, verses 9 and 10. Now it came to pass that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites. Wherefore, I did pour out my whole soul unto God for them. And while I was thus struggling in the spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind again, saying, I will visit thy brethren according to their diligence in keeping my commandments. I have given unto them this land, and it is a holy land, and I curse it not, save it be for the cause of iniquity. Wherefore, I will visit thy brethren according as I have said, and their transgressions will I bring down with sorrow upon their own heads. Element C. Redemption of the Lamanites Verses 11 through 14. And after I, Enos, had heard these words, my faith began to be unshaken in the Lord, and I prayed unto him with many long strugglings for my brethren the Lamanites. And it came to pass that after I had prayed and labored with all diligence, the Lord said unto me, I will grant unto thee according to thy desires, because of thy faith. And now, behold, this was the desire which I desired of him that if it should so be that my people, the Nephites, should fall into transgression and by any means be destroyed, and the Lamanites should not be destroyed, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people, the Nephites, even if it so be by the power of his holy arm, that it might be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, that perhaps they might be brought unto salvation." For at the present our strugglings were vain in restoring them to the true faith. And they swore in their wrath that if it were possible, they would destroy our records and us, and also all the traditions of our fathers. The Central Element D, Christ-Centered Covenant. Verses 15 and the first half of verse 16. Wherefore, I, knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, I cried unto him continually, for he had said unto me, Whatsoever thing ye shall ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive, in the name of Christ ye shall receive it. And I had faith, and I did cry unto God, that he would preserve the records. Element C Prime, Restoration of the Lamanites Verses 16b through 20. And he covenanted with me that he would bring them forth unto the Lamanites in his own due time. And I, Enos, knew it would be according to the covenant which he had made. Wherefore my soul did rest. And the Lord said unto me, Thy fathers have also required of me this thing, and that shall be done unto them according to their faith. For their faith was like unto thine. And now it came to pass that I, Enos, went about among the people of Nephi, prophesying of things to come, and testifying of the things which I had heard and seen. And I bear record that the people of Nephi did seek diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God. But our labors were vain, their hatred was fixed, and they were led by their evil nature, that they became wild and ferocious, and a bloodthirsty people. Full of idolatry and filthiness, feeding upon beasts of prey, dwelling in tents, and wandering about in the wilderness with a short skin girdle about their loins, and their heads shaven, and their skill was in the bow, and in the scimitar, and the axe, and many of them did eat nothing save it was raw meat, and they were continually seeking to destroy us. Element B' prime, Redemption of the Nephites Verses 21 to 24. And it came to pass that the people of Nephi did till the land and raise all manner of grain and of fruit and of flocks and herds and flocks of all manner of cattle of every kind and goats and wild goats and also many horses. And there were exceedingly many prophets among us. And the people were a stiff-necked people, hard to understand. And there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions, and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity and the judgments and the power of God, and all these things, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. I say there was nothing short of these things and exceedingly great plainness of speech that would keep them from going down speedily to destruction." And after this manner do I write concerning them. And I saw wars between the Nephites and Lamanites in the course of my days. Element A prime, Enos' personal redemption, verses 25 through 27. And it came to pass that I began to be old, and an hundred and seventy and nine years had passed from the time that our father Lehi had left Jerusalem. And I saw that I must soon go down to my grave, having been wrought upon by the power of God, that I must preach and prophesy unto this people, and declare the word according to the truth which is in Christ. And I have declared it in all my days, and have rejoiced in it above that of the world. And I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest, And I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality, and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. The following provides an abbreviated conceptual summary of the above proposed full-text conceptual chiasm. Element A, Enos speaks of his personal redemption from sin. The first time the voice of the Lord comes into the mind of Enos, verses 3 to 8. Element B, Enos speaks of the blessings and the cursings of the Nephites and of his own prayerful struggle for the Nephites. The second time the voice of the Lord comes into the mind of Enos, verses 9 and 10. Element C, Enos speaks of the redemption of the Lamanites by the preserved word of the Nephites. The third time the Lord speaks to Enos. Element D. The words of the Nephites are to be brought to the Lamanites, fulfilling the promise of the third time the voice of the Lord speaks to Enos. Verses 15 and the first half of 16. Element C prime. Enos speaks of the Nephites' attempt to redeem the Lamanites. Second half of verse 16 through verse 20. Element B prime. Enos speaks of the blessed and precarious condition of the Nephites and their contentions with the Lamanites. Verses 21 to 24. Element A prime. Enos speaks of his personal redemption. Verses 25 to 27. Verses 1 and 2 serve as a colophon for the text, which I will discuss later. Regarding intentionality, at this stage in the discussion of the Enos text as a potential thematic chiasm, the proposal perhaps may rightly be viewed as at least important and promising say what one will about the overall hypothetical structure, at least the proposed tightly constructed central chiasm of verses 15 and the first half of 16, seem clearly to show what may be construed as a purposeful reversal in the sequence of repeated words and phrases centering on the name of Christ. If perhaps that can properly be viewed as at least implying recognition by Enus as author of chiasmus as a rhetorical tool, then maybe the overall structure of the text might also have been influenced by his possible acquaintance with, if not use, of that device. Says the anonymous reviewer concerning verses 15 and first half of 16, quote, This chiasm is nearly flawless, strong enough to make a compelling statistical argument, that Enos was at least familiar with the technique, end quote. The Paired Sections Analyzed Sections A and A' prime both concern Enos' own personal redemption from sin and the prospects for his own salvation. Whereas in A, Enos kneels down before his maker, verse 4, in A' prime he stands before him verse 27. In A, he tells of the words which he had often heard his father speak, verse 3. And in A' prime, he tells of the word he himself was inspired to declare, verse 26. In A, he refers to his own father, verse 3. And in A' prime, he mentions father Lehi, verse 25. In A, Enos states that, quote, Many years pass away, end quote, before Christ should manifest himself in the flesh, verse 8. And in A prime, he states that, quote, 179 years had passed away, end quote, since Lehi left Jerusalem, verse 25. While in A, Enos speaks of eternal life and the joy of the saints, verse 3, stating that all the day long did he cry unto the Lord, verse 4. Correspondingly, in A prime, he tells that he did rejoice in the day when his mortal should put on immortality, verse 27, having declared the word in all his days, having rejoiced in the word above that of the world, verse 26. In A, he mentions that his voice reached the heavens, verse four, and in A prime he is assured there is a place prepared for him in the mansions of the Father, verse twenty seven. In A, he continues, quote, there came a voice unto me saying, Thou shalt be blessed, end quote, verse five. In A prime he mentions that his Redeemer will say unto me, ye blessed, end quote verse 27. In A, Enos declares that he knows God could not lie, verse 6. And in A prime, he speaks of, quote, the truth which is in Christ, end quote, verse 26. In A, the Lord tells Enos he had never before heard nor seen Christ, verse 8. And in A prime, Enos confirms that he indeed shall see Christ's face with pleasure verse 27 in other words a and a prime seem intimately related to one another and a prime fully answers what a anticipates both a verses 3 to 8 and a prime verses 25 to 27 concern Ennis's efforts to seek and obtain his own personal redemption both in this life, verses 3 to 8, and in the immortal realms, verses 25 to 27. Sections B and B' prime concern the potential for destruction faced by the Nephites because of iniquity and Enos' concern for their redemption. In B, Enus mentions twice having, quote, heard these words, verses 9 and 11. In B' prime. He mentions twice, quote, these things, end quote, verse 23. In B, Enos quotes the Lord concerning this land given unto the Nephites, a holy land, not to be cursed save for iniquity, verses 9 to 10. In B prime, he states that the people of Nephi did till the land, verse 21, but otherwise had to be reminded of the judgments of God, verse 23. The Lord's repeated use of the word land in verse 10 speaks of the land of promise, contrasted with Enos' single unique use of the term in verse 21, indicative merely of the ground. B and B' prime thus correspond to one another. Both are concerned with the redemption of the Nephites and the destruction and sorrow that awaits them if they transgress. Sections C and C prime concern Enos' hope for the redemption of the Lamanites through preservation of the record of the Nephites. In C, Enos speaks, and in C prime the Lord speaks of Enos' faith, verses eleven and eighteen. In C, Enos speaks of the good traditions of the fathers, verse fourteen, and in C prime, he speaks of the faith of the fathers, verse eighteen. In C, Enos tells his concern, if it should so be, that the Nephites should fall into transgression and be destroyed, verse 13, and tells that the Lamanites had sworn in their wrath that they would destroy the Nephite records and us, verse 14. In C prime, Enos correspondingly states that the Lamanites' hatred was fixed. And while prophesying of things to come and of things which he had heard and seen, verse 19, Enos tells of the Lamanites' efforts in continually seeking to destroy the Nephites. Verse 20, in C, the Lord states, I will grant unto thee according to thy desires because of thy faith. Verse 12, while in C prime, the Lord states, It shall be done unto them, the fathers, according to their faith verse 18. In C, Enos speaks of his prayer with many long strugglings for the Lamanites, adding that he prayed and labored with all diligence, verses 11 and 12, while remarking that at the present our strugglings were vain in restoring them to the true faith, verse 14. Similarly, in C prime, he mentions that he and his people did seek diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God, adding that their labors were vain, verse 20. The correspondences between C and C' prime are evident in the text. Both C and C' prime concern Enos' hope that the Lamanites will be restored to the true faith and be redeemed. C and C' prime manifestly are a corresponding pair, and both anticipate the possibility that the Lamanites should not be destroyed, verse 13, that the Lamanites might be brought unto salvation, verse 13. Whereas in C, Enos states the Nephite records will be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, verse 13, in C prime he states that the Lord covenanted with him that he would bring them forth unto the lamanites in his own due time verse 16 Section D the central element of the overall concentric pattern of verses 3 to 27 is itself a most appropriate Christ-centered concentric structure composed of the text of verses 15 and the first half of 16 Enos first expresses his knowledge that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, verse 15. This knowledge had been imparted to him when, after his faith had begun to be unshaken in the Lord, verse 11, the Lord God had said to Enos he would grant unto him according to his desire, verse 12, which desire was that the Lord God would preserve a record of the Nephites, verse 13. Then, because the Lord God had said unto him that whatsoever thing ye shall ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive in the name of Christ, ye shall receive it. Verse 15. Enos adds that he cried unto the Lord God continually, and that he had faith, and did cry unto God, that he would preserve the records. Verses 15 and the first half of 16. The Lord God had promised to enter into the covenant with Enos to preserve the records of the Nephites for the benefit of the Lamanites, as Enos had desired, verses 12 to 13. C and C' prime manifestly are a corresponding pair and both anticipate the possibility that the Lamanites should not be destroyed, verse 13, that the Lamanites might be brought unto salvation, verse 13. Whereas in C... Enos states the Nephite records will be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, verse 13. In C' he states that the Lord covenanted with him that he would bring them forth unto the Lamanites in his own due time, verse 16. Section D, the central element of the overall concentric pattern of verses 3 to 27, is itself a most appropriate Christ-centered concentric structure, composed of the text of verses 15 and the first half of 16. Enos first expresses his knowledge that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, verse 15. This knowledge had been imparted to him when, after his faith had begun to be unshaken in the Lord, verse 11, the Lord God had said to Enos he would grant unto him according to his desire verse 12 which desire was that the lord god would preserve a record of the nephites verse 13. then because the lord god had said unto him that whatsoever thing ye shall ask in faith believing that ye shall receive in the name of christ ye shall receive it verse 15. enos adds that he cried unto the lord god continually and that he had faith and did cry unto God that he would preserve the records. Verses 15 and the first half of 16. The Lord God had promised to enter into the covenant with Enos to preserve the records of the Nephites for the benefit of the Lamanites, as Enos had desired, verses 12 to 13. And in the centerpiece of the overall chaotic passage, Enos cries unto the Lord God that he fulfill that promise. Verse 16. Elements that give unity and progression to the paired sections. Several elements provide a sense of unity and progression. These are discussed in the following sections. Prayer, struggling, and labor. Innes uses the terms prayer, struggling, and labor as complements of one another. Prayer is equated with struggling, and struggling is equated with prayer and labor. Having stated in verse nine that in prayer he did pour out his whole soul unto God, in verse ten he equates that prayer with struggling in the spirit, and in verse eleven he tells how he prayed unto the Lord with many long strugglings. Also in verse twelve he equates those strugglings with having prayed and labored. Thus, while in verse fourteen Enos states that his and his people's strugglings were vain. In the chiastic counterpart in verse 20, he states that his and his people's labors were vain. Each use of these related terms occurs at or near the beginning of the respective elements of the chiastic structure, and the relationship among them serves to highlight the shift from one main emphasis in the first half of the book, verses 2 to 17, that of Enos' prayer and his strugglings in prayer to restore the Lamanites to the true faith, to a related main emphasis in the second half of the book, verses 18 to 27, that of the Nephites' labors to restore the Lamanites to the true faith. The latter half of the book lacks mention of the words prayed, prayer, struggling, and strugglings. The word pray is never used. Use of the word labored in the first half, in verse 12, clearly connotes prayer, whereas use of the word labors in the last half of the book, in verse 20, manifestly relates to prophesying and testifying to the Lamanites. See verses 19 and 20. From faith and struggling to knowledge and rest. Subtly... Enos effectuates a transformation in his text from faith and struggling to knowledge and rest. In the first three sections, verses 2 to 8, 9 to 11, and 11 to 14, Enos tells of his wrestle, in which he cried and was struggling with many long strugglings, having prayed and labored, all with faith in Christ. However, After the transitional middle section, Enos writes, in the last three sections, verses 16 and 20, verses 19 to 20 and 21 to 24, and verses 25 to 27, of what he knew, of what he could testify to, and of what he could bear record, telling both that he did know that in Christ eternally he shall rest, and that because of the covenant of Christ, his soul already did rest. Beginnings. Certain weaving factors also exist. The transition from elements A to B is characterized by the same factors that signal the transition from elements B to C. At the former transition, Innes speaks of the fact that when he had heard these words, he began to feel a desire for the welfare of the Nephites. Verse 9. Similarly, at the latter transition, he speaks of the fact that when he had heard these words, his faith began to be unshaken, verse 11. That latter transition from elements B to C concerning Enos's unshaken faith later becomes, following the central sections of the book, the subject of the transition back to element C prime, where the faith of the fathers is said to be like unto Enos's faith. Internal Patterns at Subordinate Levels of Analysis Some meaningful internal patterning seems plausible. For example, within B, the phrase, had heard these words, appears at the beginning and ending of the element. The phrase, I will visit thy brethren, appears twice. Each of the appearances found closer to the center of the element. And surrounding the center, are the contrasting ideas of, on the one hand, keeping my commandments, and, on the other hand, the iniquity and transgressions of the Nephites. This latter contrast of ideas seems to provide an appropriate framework for what may be a significant contrast stated in the middle of the element, concerning the land, contrasting a holy land on the one hand with a cursed land on the other. All of these correspondences suggesting that an internal structure possibly may exist within Element B of the proposed chiasm of the text. The correspondences proposed here may be a one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one pattern as follows: In one, Enus states that he had heard these words in one prime, He states, I, Enos, had heard these words. Those quotes are from, those quotes are from, those quotes are respectively from verses 9 and 11. All within verse 10, from element 2 to element 2 prime, we have the following. In 2, Enos speaks, of the voice of the Lord that came into his mind saying, and in two prime, he says, I have said. In three, he quotes the Lord, I will visit thy brethren. And in three prime, he quotes the Lord, I will visit thy brethren. In four, he refers to diligence in keeping my commandments, and in four prime, he contrasts that with the cause of iniquity and transgressions, and in the center, he provides a central contrast, I have given unto them this land, and it is a holy land, and I curse it not. Similar to the apparent use of reversed repetitions and contrasts within element B earlier in the text, verses 9 to 10, the Enos text seems possibly to reflect additional repetitions and correspondences within the proposed element B' prime later in the text, verses 21 to 24, which may show a 1-2-3-3-2-1 chiasm. In 1, Enos speaks of the people of Nephi verse 21. And in one prime, he speaks of the wars between the Nephites and Lamanites, verse 24. In two, he refers to there being exceedingly many prophets among us, the people being hard to understand and requiring exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying. In two prime, he says that there is nothing short of these things, an exceedingly great plainness of speech that was required to keep them from going down speedily to destruction. In 3 and 3 prime, he speaks of their efforts to continually remind of death and the duration of eternity and the judgments and power of God. In 3 prime, he speaks of stirring them up continually continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. This proposed chiastic sub-pattern of 1, 2, 3, 3, 2, 1 shows possible contrasting correspondence between elements one and one, where the seeming prosperity of the people of Nephi contrasts with the wars they endure. The phrase hard to understand is understood to mean hard of understanding perhaps giving meaningful correspondence to the statement of the need for exceedingly great plainness of speech used to warn the Nephites. Regarding such internal patterns, it should be noted that Noel B. Reynolds recently analyzed the proposed chiasm of Alma 36, doing so in light of what has been published by Roland Manet. Reynolds notes that rhetorical patterns within elements of large-scale or macro-chiasms often are manifest on subordinate rhetorical levels, and he says that Manet gives, quote, the most detailed explanation of rhetorical levels, end quote. Minet published his two extensive works concerning levels analysis in 1998 and 2012. In short, in his 1998 rhetorical analysis text, And in his 2012 treatise, Manet reviews the history of the study of the arrangement or organization of texts on various levels. Manet says these prior studies of a rhetorical nature all recognize the existence of micro and macro structures, noting that what is most urgently lacking here is a systematic presentation of biblical rhetoric, to which he adds, Symmetries and relationships of all kinds are very numerous in a text, but the whole problem resides in knowing at which level of organization of the text they are relevant. Dissatisfied with prior analyses of levels composition, Minet wrote his treatise. An easily understood, simple, and yet elegant example of levels analysis Is H. Douglas Buckwalter's evaluation of the levels of rhetorical structure in Luke's travel narrative. The entire ten and one half chapters of text from Luke chapter nine verse 51 through Luke chapter 19 verse 27 form one overall ABCD CBA chiasm, a seven element concentrism. Without commenting on the credibility of Buck Walter's analysis, it is sufficient to say here that his proposal is easily seen as an example in which within each of the elements of the larger full text chiasm, labeled as ABCDCBA, C, C, there is depicted a smaller feature with a rhetorical structure of some sort. The smaller rhetorical features he identifies consists of four directly parallel structures, two of them being ABCD, ABCD, and two of them being AB, AB structures. One chiastic structure, an ABBA chiasm, and two concentric structures, each an ABCD, CBA concentrism. The Buckwalter analysis is as follows. Element A, the mission of Jesus, the rejected Lord, turns toward Jerusalem. That is represented in chapter 9, verse 51 through chapter 10, verse 37. The corresponding A prime element is mission of Jesus, rejected client king, nears Jerusalem. That is reflected in chapter 18, verse 9 through chapter 19 verse 27 in the A element is an ABCD CBA concentrism, and in the A prime element is a substructure of ABCD CBA his element B is persistent pursuit of God and Christ mandated by the gospel B prime is persistent pursuit of God and Christ mandated by the gospel. B is expressed in the text of chapter 10, verse 38, through chapter 11, verse 54, and B' prime is reflected in the text of chapter 17, verse 1, through chapter 18, verse 8. Element B shows an ABCD, ABCD parallelism, and B' prime shows an ABAB A, B alternating structure. Element C is lessons on money, possessions, and faithful service to master. Element C prime is lessons on money, possessions, and faithful service to master. Element C is represented by the text of chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 59. And element C prime represents the text of chapter 15, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 31. Element C is comprised of a chiastic substructure, ABBA, and element C' prime is comprised of an alternating structure, ABAB. The central element of Buckwalter's proposal is element D, repentance of sin and submission to Jesus, comprised of the text of chapter 13, verse 1 through chapter 14, verse 35 and that reveals a direct parallelism, ABCD, ABCD. Reynolds likewise depicts numerous similar structures at the subordinate levels of his analysis of Alma chapter 36, accounting as he does for rhetorical features he perceives in all of the text of Alma 36. Reynolds disclaims being the first to introduce levels analysis to a study of the chiasm of Alma 36. Regarding levels analysis in Hebrew writing generally, Reynolds notes that his own levels analysis and his own proposals regarding Alma 36 build upon and expand prior discussions or depictions of this sort of analysis. Numerous other analysts, including Lowell G. Tensmeyer, John W. Welch, Angela Crowell, Donald R. Perry, David Demke, and Scott Lee Van Adder, D. Lynn Johnson and Jeff Lindsay join Reynolds in having conducted some levels analysis of ALMA 36. Relevant to this present discussion are the following three observations Evident from the earlier suggestion of possible rhetorical patterns within element B verses 9 to 10 and element B prime verses 21 to 24 in the ABCD CBA chiasm of Enos chapter 1 verses 3 through 27. Evident from Buckwalter's levels analysis of Luke's travel narrative and evident from some but not all of the numerous prior studies of Alma 36. The three observations are these. One, rhetorical structures at subordinate levels, such as in Buckwalter's analysis, necessarily are parallelistic structures, covering a shorter amount of text. And, as proposed in the case of Enus, such structures are characterized more by antimetaboly based on words and phrases, than by chiasmus strictly defined, based on ideas. In the Buckwalter analysis, the ideas are expressed by reference to lessons on money, repentance, persistent pursuit, and the like. Two, the overall macrochiasm in Buckwalter is manifested in the ABCDCBA C, C, proposal. And in the book of Enos, the proposed overall macrochiasm of verses 3 to 27 consists of the A, B, C, D, C, B, A structure regarding the three prayers and the three answers to prayer. And three, the overall chiasm in each case is not formed by a reversal in the sequence of the repetition of key words and key phrases in the text, Antimetaboly, but instead By a reversal in the sequence of the repetition of ideas, chiasmus proper. The result of the combination of those three observations is this: if an analyst attempts to discern and depict an overall chiastic structure for a lengthy text, such as Alma 36 or Enos chapter 1 verses 3 to 27, by reference only to words and phrases. Such an effort may result in a meaningful and even a beautiful set of correspondences, but it may be incomplete and may leave gaps in the analysis, such that portions of the text under consideration are omitted in the analysis. This is explained well by Reynolds in the context of his discussion of Alma 36, and is touched upon in more detail in the appendix to this present article in the context of the Book of Venus. In short, large texts may be analyzed with attention to the repetitions of words and phrases, but when a large text manifests an overall chiastic pattern, it generally reflects a reversal in the sequence of repeated ideas such that any key words or key phrases in the text may or may not contribute to that overall structure. Overall Correspondences in addition to the possible correspondences within element B and within element B prime, correspondences exist also between the themes of elements in B versus 9 to 10 and B prime versus 21 to 24, respectively displaying the relationships between on the one hand iniquity, transgressions and stiff-neckedness and, on the other, the resulting sorrowful visitations of the Lord upon the heads of the transgressors, with their resulting destructions. The many internal repetitions within element B, possibly forming a chiastic subsystem, correspond with the apparent internal repetitions within element B'. Prime. Central to element B is the holy, blessed nature of the land when the people are not iniquitous. Similarly, serving as a transitional idea leading into element b prime enos reports evidence that the land indeed was blessed whereas within element b the nephites land is stated to be blessed because of their diligent obedience also within that same verse 10 of element b that same land is cursed because of their iniquity similarly in b prime the progression of ideas advances from a blessed land to one filled with destructions whatever the patterns within b alone and b prime alone the repetitions do exist within each of the elements and more importantly because of the repetitions between b and b prime those two elements appear to be intimately related christ centered structure That Enos apparently used chiasmus as a structural framework for his entire text may be evidenced by the fact that a promise from the Lord, set forth in the central passage of the book, verses 15 and the first half of 16, is preceded by the prayer that leads up to receipt of the promise and followed by the efforts of the promisee to share the blessings of that promise with those who would benefit from it. Another stylistic indication that Enos may have consciously used chiasmus is likewise found in the characteristic presence of a reference to Christ in the central phrase of the book. Christ-centered and Jehovah-centered texts are abundant among scriptural texts analyzed as chiastic within the Judeo-Christian tradition. For one example, Wilfred G.E. Watson says of Psalm 136, verses 10 to 15, that his elements A and A' prime in verses 12 and 13 of the chiasm he proposes for the text of verses 10 to 15, quote, form the center, Yahweh exerting his power over the elements, end quote. Writers of sacred texts in the Judeo-Christian tradition often place a reference to the Lord at or near the middle or focal point of a chiastic pattern. The following represents only a very small sampling of lengthier texts that place a reference to the Lord at the center, the turning point, or the chiastic center of a text. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 9, verse 19, centering on God's remembrance of Noah. Psalm 58, centering on, break their teeth, O God, break their teeth, O Lord. Psalm 71, centering on, O God, be near. O God, help. Similarly, says Mene, for example, of 1 John 3, verses 4-6, to The segments at the beginning, verse 4, and end, verse 6, concern man, while the central segment, verse 5, speaks of Christ. It can therefore be said, that the piece is concentric in construction. End quote. It is Christ centered. Unquestionably, the proposed Christ centered purpose of the Enos text fits well within this tradition. The central turning point in verses 15 and the first half of 16 conveys a crossing effect. Prior to this point in the text, Enos has told his readers of his strugglings in prayer for his people the Nephites and for the Lamanites. He has told of hearing the voice of the Lord promising to grant him according to his desires and he has stated what his desires are and because the Lord had told him so he states at the center that he knew that the Lord God was able to preserve the records of his people for he had desired it. The short central passage with its tightly related elements manifests a clear turning point from the prayer and struggle of the first half of the book to the actions and labors of the second half. Beginning in verse 19, Enos recounts that he went about among the people of Nephi and that his people sought diligently to restore the Lamanites. The turning point is emphasized by the juxtaposition of the two phrases, ask in faith suggesting prayer and supplication and i had faith suggesting active exertions it is also reflected in the comparison between believing that ye shall receive and the phrase ye shall receive the central element forms a powerful turning point whether it should be termed a chiastic passage or more appropriately a concentric one the distinction sometimes is made it nonetheless speaks volumes concerning why it is we have the Book of Mormon today. And both the language of the text of the Book of Enos and its rhetorical structure center on the covenant Christ makes with Enos that he will preserve the writings of the Nephites for the benefit of the Lamanites, truly a Christ centered composition. External and internal boundaries. Unquestionably, the book of Enos is a complete literary unit. It is bounded by Jacob's command to Enos to take the small plates of Nephi, Jacob chapter 7, verse 27, and Enos' similar command to Jerem (Jerem, chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 14 and 15. It begins with an unmistakable colophon that introduces, and written by, its author, verses 1 and 2. And ends with the characteristic final, Amen. Verse 27. Indeed, even the internal boundaries structuring the book are clearly delineated by the wording of the text itself. Five of the six pericopes surrounding the central chiasm of the text, reflected in the general outline set forth earlier, begin with the signaling phrase, And it came to pass. See verses 9, 12, 19, 21, and 25, a phrase that appears nowhere else in the book. Each of those phrases serves also as the beginning phrase of the first three and the last three of the seven paragraphs of text of the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, as perceptively paragraphed by the typesetter of that edition, John Gilbert, corresponding with elements 1, 2, 3, three, two, one, in the general outline of the chapter. Gilbert's first, second, third, fifth, sixth, and seventh paragraphs begin respectively with, Behold, it came to pass, now it came to pass, and it came to pass, and now it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. pass." The middle element, his fourth paragraph, begins with the word, Wherefore? Regarding the paragraphing by Gilbert for the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, it might be noted here that sections 4 and 3 prime hint that it might be possible that the text of verses 16b to 18 form an element d prime to correspond with element d in an overall a, b, c, d, d prime, c prime, b prime, a. A prime chiastic structure, as follows: C, redemption of the Lamanites, verses 12 to 14. D, Christ-centered covenant, verses 15 and the first half of 16. D prime, Christ-centered covenant, the second half of verse 16 through verse 18. And C prime, restoration of the Lamanites, verses 19 and 20 whether any features of the text in the hypothetical element D prime versus 16b to 18 would account for rhetorical structures over the text of those two and one half verses is not readily apparent whether any features in the text of the hypothetical whether any features Whether any features of the text in the hypothetical element D prime, covering the second half of verse 16, covering the second half of verse 16 through verse 18, whether any features of the text in the hypothetical element D prime would account for rhetorical structures over the text of those two and one-half verses is not readily apparent. A well-balanced proposed chiasm. The Book of Venus presents remarkable balance between the two halves of the text that surround the central chiasm of verses 15 and 16a. According to text produced by Royal Skousen, the English-language word counts of the first and last flanks of the chiasm might be similar to the Egyptian or Hebrew word counts in the otherwise unavailable original. And those English language word counts of the text surrounding the chiastic passage at the center compare as follows. The total number of English words in the text of verses 1 through 14 is 558 English words. In the text of verses 16b through 27, the total number of words is 554. Those represent, respectively, 50.2% of the words in the first half, and 49.8% of the words in the second half. A strong sense of completion and return. The center of the book begs for resolution and return. And, indeed, because the second half of the text mirrors the first half, the book ends as it begins. The need for the preservation of the Nephite records is manifest in the mention of actual wars and destructions among the Nephites, verse 24. That answers the prediction of destruction set forth in verse 10. The early promise that Enos would be blessed, verse 5, is wholly fulfilled in verse 27, where the Lord refers to him as ye blessed. Even the only two time indicators, verse 8, many years pass away, and verse 25, seventy and nine years had passed away, are in the early and late parts of the book. The early references to joy and eternal life verse 3 are repeated by references to Enos's rejoicing and immortality in verses 26 to 27. Whereas in verse 4 Enos kneels down before his maker, in verse 27 he stands before him. And the only 3 uses of the name of Christ in the entire book are at the very chiastic center point verse 15 within the first element at the beginning, verse 8, and within the last element at the end, verse 26. This is consistent with the observation made by Niels Lund, who noted that, quote, identical ideas are often distributed in such a fashion that they occur in the extremes and at the center of their respective system and nowhere else in the system, end quote. Other Important Features of the Proposed Enos Chiasm There are two other important features to note about the proposed chiasm, an intrinsic economy of style and the usage of rare and unique vocabulary. Enus knew that his people's record would be preserved. If not at the time of his own writing, then surely shortly thereafter, the place upon which he wrote had already approached the point at which few words could be written on them, they being small, according to the statements of his son Jerem. Jerem chapter 1, verses 2 and 14. Enos wrote only about 150% more text than his son Jerem. Perhaps aware of the economy of style, the beauty of form, and the depth of meaning available through creating, and the powerful spiritual experience that would be treasured and appreciated by those who would discover and study a Christ-centered chiastic text, Enos may well have purposefully used this technique in order to open up a fuller appreciation of his life and message, notwithstanding, and perhaps in part because of, the apparent paucity of writing materials in his time. Words and phrases sometimes are unique to a chiastic passage and may rarely or never otherwise appear anywhere in the scriptures. Such rare and unique terms occasionally are identified as elements that support the structure of a chiastic pattern. For example, Yehuda Radi has identified a chiastic pattern for the entire book of Genesis while relying in part on the reversed repetition of certain unique words and phrases that either appear only in their respective chiastic elements within Genesis, or appear nowhere else in the Bible, or appear only rarely elsewhere in the Bible. At the beginning of the chiasm he proposes is the phrase, his daughter-in-law, referring to Tamar in chapter 11, verse 31 which corresponds with his daughter-in-law, end quote, referring to Sarah in chapter 38, verse 24. Those are the only two daughters-in-law that are mentioned in Genesis. In chapter 13, verse 6, the text refers to, quote, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, end quote. And in the chiastic counterpart in verse 7 of chapter 36, the text reads, quote, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, end quote. That phrase is unique to Genesis chapters 13 and 36 and is found nowhere else in the Bible. Chapter 13 verse 7 refers to the Canaanite and the Phariseite. Chapter 34 verse 30 refers to the Canaanite and the Phariseite. The pairing of those two words together is found nowhere else in the Bible, except in Genesis 13 and 34. Chapter 16, verse 10, uses the phrase, quote, which cannot be numbered for multitude, end quote. That same phrase, which cannot be numbered for multitude, appears in the chiastic counterpart of chapter 32, verse 12. The phrase, quote, the firstborn daughter, end quote, is mentioned both in chapter 19, verse 31, and in chapter 29, verse 26, and is otherwise mentioned only once in the book of Samuel. Chapter 19, verse 34 refers to, quote, last night, end quote, which is referred to also in chapter 31, verse 29. That phrase is used once in Kings and in Job. And in Genesis only in chapters nineteen and thirty one. The phrase seize by force is mentioned only in chapter twenty one verse twenty five and in chapter thirty one verse thirty one and nowhere else in Genesis. And the phrase be a witness is found only in chapter twenty one verse thirty and its chiastic counterpart chapter thirty one verse fifty two. Found only in Genesis chapter 24, verse 12, and in chapter 26, and found nowhere else in the Bible, is the phrase, the Lord grant me success, translated in the King James Version as, send me good speed. For another example, Welch points out that the phrase, left hand of God, appears only twice in the Book of Mormon. Mosea chapter 5, verse 10, and chapter 5, verse 12, a repeated key phrase that forms two corresponding elements of the first chiastic Book of Mormon passage identified as such by Welch, Mosiah, chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, and A, B, C, D, E, F, F, E, D, C, B, A, chiasm. While not at all part of as extensive a formulation as Radhi's Genesis proposal, nor reliant on a unique phrase like Welch's, a possible instance of what might be termed a chiastic use of a rare term is Enos's two uses of the rare phrase true faith in verses 14 and 20, elements C and C'. The rarity of the phrase itself and the relationships of the two words to one another are discussed by twetness. The two uses of the term in the book of Enos occur in corresponding chiastic elements C and C' prime, concerning the Nephites' strugglings to restore the Lamanites to the true faith, verse 14, and their efforts to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God, verse 20. The only other appearances of the phrase true faith in all scripture are appear in Alma chapter 44 verse 4 and 3rd Nephi chapter 6 verse 14. And those two uses both concern themselves also with the relationships among the Nephites, Lamanites, and true faith. One cannot read Alma's words to the Lamanite leader Arahemna in Alma chapter 34 verses 3 to 4 with its reference to the relationships between transgression and destruction and between faith and societal preservation without hearkening back to Enos' concern with the redemption of his own people and of the Lamanites and the preservation of his own people's records and the role that righteousness and wickedness play. And one cannot read what Mormon says in Third Nephi chapter six, verse fourteen, about the faithful Lamanites who, in the thirtieth year from the coming of Christ, were converted to the true faith and who were willing, quote, with all diligence, to keep the commandments of the Lord. End quote, without recalling Enos' references to true faith, diligence, and the need for keeping the commandments, the tradition of prophets who desire preservation of the word of the Lord. Enos and Nephi were not alone in desiring or requiring that the Lord God preserve the word of the Lord for the salvation of mankind. Noting the reason for preserving the records, Nephi explained that he had obtained the records which the Lord had commanded us, and searched them, and found that they were desirable, yea, even of great worth unto us, insomuch that we could preserve the commandments of the Lord unto our children." First Nephi chapter five verse twenty-one. The Lord commanded other prophets to preserve His word. He commanded the prophet Moses to put into the ark of the covenant the testimony, Exodus chapter twenty-five verse sixteen, the book of the law, Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one verse twenty-four, the tables of the covenant, Hebrews chapter nine verse four. The Lord told the prophet Isaiah, "Now go, write it before them in a table." And note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come for ever and ever. End quote. Isaiah chapter thirty, verse eight. The word of the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel was for him to take the two sticks of Judah and Joseph, written on two separate continents, and join them one to another into one. Clearly, something possible, only if both are recorded, protected, and preserved. Ezekiel chapter thirty seven. Verses 15 to 17. Moroni did seal up these records. Moroni 10, 2. And for this very purpose are these plates preserved, which contain these records, that the promises of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he made to his people and that the Lamanites might come to the knowledge of their fathers, and that they might know the promises of the Lord, and that they may believe the gospel and rely on the merits of Jesus Christ, and be glorified through faith in his name, and that through their repentance they might be saved. Doctrine and Covenants, section 3, verses 19 to 20. Regarding his desire that the records of his fathers be preserved, records that testify of Christ, Mormon states that, These things are written unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, and they are to be hid up unto the Lord, that they may come forth in his own due time. And this is the commandment which I have received. And behold, they shall come forth according to the commandment of the Lord, when he shall see fit in his wisdom. And behold, they shall go unto the unbelieving, and for this intent shall they go, that they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the Father may bring about through his most beloved his great and eternal purpose in restoring all of the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant, and also that the seed of his people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth unto them from the Gentiles. And also the Lord will remember the prayers of the righteous, which have been put up unto him for them. Mormon, chapter 5 verses 12 to 15 and 21. Indeed, when the Nephites gathered to the land of Comorah to prepare for their last struggle, Mormon chapter 6 verse 6, Mormon's concern turned toward protection and preservation of the sacred records. And it came to pass, that when we had gathered in all our people in one to the land of Comorah, behold, I, Mormon, began to be old, and knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites, for the Lamanites would destroy them, therefore I made this record out of the plates of Nephi, and hid up... "...in the hill Cumorah all the records which had been entrusted to me by the hand of the Lord, save it were these few plates which I gave unto my son Moroni." Mormon chapter 6, verse 6. Concerning that which he had written, Mormon wrote that to him those things were pleasing, and he took the small plates with their small account of the prophets and combined them with the remainder of his record." Written on the plates of Mormon. Words of Mormon, chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 6. While explaining that the large and small plates of Nephi were handed down from generation to generation until they have fallen into my hands. And I, Mormon, pray to God that they may be preserved from this time henceforth. And I know that they will be preserved, For there are great things written upon them, out of which my people and their brethren shall be judged at the great and last day, according to the word of God which is written. Words of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 11. King Mosiah kept the plates of brass and all the records and conferred them upon Alma, who was the son of Alma, and commanded him that he should keep and preserve them, and also keep a record of the people, handing them down from one generation to another, even as they had been handed down from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Mosiah chapter 28, verse 20. And Alma urged his son Helaman to keep all these things sacred, which I have kept, even as I have kept them, for it is for a wise purpose that they are kept. And these plates of brass, which contain these engravings, which have the records of the Holy Scriptures upon them, which have the genealogy of our forefathers, even from the beginning, behold, it has been prophesied by our fathers that they should be kept and handed down from one generation to another and be kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord until they should go forth unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, that they shall know of the mysteries contained thereon. Alma chapter 37, verses 2 to 4. Alma tells Helaman to keep the twenty-four plates. Alma, chapter 37, verse 21. Shiblon confers the sacred things and engravings upon Helaman, the son of Helaman. Nephi, the son of Helaman, gives charge unto his son Nephi, "...concerning the plates of brass, and all the records which have been kept, and all those things which have been kept sacred," from the departure of Lehi out of Jerusalem, 3rd Nephi, chapter 1, verse 2. Nephi is the just man who did keep the record, and whom Christ called upon during his visit to the Nephites, asking him to bring forth the record which ye have kept. 3rd Nephi, chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 23, verse 7. Those who kept the records in the sense of writing upon them also kept them in the sense of having preserved them. King Benjamin reminded his three sons, Mosiah, Heloram, and Helaman, that were it not for these plates of brass, which contain these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance, even at this present time, not knowing the mysteries of God. For it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered all these things, to have taught them to his children, except it were for the help of these plates. For he, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings, and teach them to his children, that thereby they could teach them to their children, and so fulfilling the commandments of God, even down to this present time. I say unto you, my sons, were it not for these things, which have been kept and preserved by the hand of God, that we might read and understand of his mysteries and have his commandments always before our eyes, that even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief. End quote. Mosiah chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And as Mormon notes, King Mosiah thereafter, quote, took the plates of brass and all the things which he had kept and conferred them upon Alma, who was the son of Alma, Yea, all the records, and also the interpreters, and conferred them upon him, and commanded him that he should keep and preserve them, and also keep a record of the people, handing them down from one generation to another, even as they had been handed down from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Quote. Mosiah chapter twenty eight, verse twenty. In short, Enos fits well into this almost universal concern of the prophets of God, that the word of the Lord be preserved for the benefit of his children. Mosiah chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, compared to Enos chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. A beautiful chiasm exists in the text of Mosiah chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, discovered by Welch in 1976 which has been depicted variously over the years and held out to be one of the ten best chiasms in the Book of Mormon, best depicted by Welch as follows, with one small modification here, a chiasm with which the centerpiece pattern of the Book of Enos compares favorably. The depiction here seems to be what Welch would likely agree best reflects his discovery. For ease of analysis, prime symbols after capital letters in the second flank of the chiasm are added here. And one minor modification is made by moving the phrase and also from the end of B prime to the beginning of A prime. Otherwise, Welch's proposal is left intact. A. And now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon him the name of Christ, B, must be called by some other name. C. Therefore he findeth himself on the left hand of God. D. And I would that ye should remember also that this is the name that I said I should give unto you. E. That never should be blotted out. F. Except it be through transgression. F prime. Therefore, take heed that ye do not transgress. E prime, that the name be not blotted out of your hearts. D prime, I say unto you, I would that ye should remember to retain the name written always in your hearts. C prime, that ye are not found on the left hand of God. B prime, but that ye hear and know the voice by which ye shall be called, A prime, and also the name by which he shall call you. In all, the number of English words in the text in which the Mosiah chapter 5, verse 10 to 12 chiasm appears is 139 English words. By contrast, the number of English words in the text in which the Enos 1, 15 and 16 central concentric structure appears is 61 words. Welch's structure relies on six words and phrases that appear in the first half of the chiasm and are repeated in the reverse sequence in the second half of the chiasm, a total of 12 words and phrases overall, which comprise a total of 22 words, accounting for 15.8% of the English-language text in which the chiasm is situated. The proposed structure for the centerpiece of the Book of Enos follows. F. F. Wherefore, I knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, G, I cried unto him continually, for he had said unto me, H, whatsoever things ye shall ask in faith, believing, I, that ye shall receive, J, in the name of Christ, I prime, ye shall receive it, H prime. And I had faith, G prime, and I did cry unto God, F prime, that he would preserve the records. That proposed structure relies on reference to five words and phrases in the first flank, one word in the middle element, and five words and phrases in the second flank. A total of 11 words and phrases overall, consisting of a total of 24 words Within those English words and phrases, accounting for 39% of the English language text within which the concentric structure is situated, while the English language text of Mosiah chapter 5 verses 10 to 12 accounts for more than two times the amount of text that can be accounted for in Enos chapter 1 verses 15 and 16, 139 words compared to 61 words. And while the chiasm found by Welch, as calculated in the English language text of Mosiah chapter 5 verses 10 to 12, relies on more words and phrases than the concentric structure proposed for the English language text of Enos 1, 15 to 16, 12 words and phrases and 22 words overall in Welch's chiasm compared to 11 words and phrases and 24 words overall in the proposed concentric structure in the Enos text, it would appear, at least from this sort of statistical comparison, that the ratio of the number of key words and key phrases to the overall number of words of text for the proposed concentric structure of Enos chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 compares favorably with the ratio of key words and key phrases to the overall number of words of text for the proposed chiasm of Mosiah 5 10 to 12. In short, it might be said that the proposed concentric structure at the center of the book of Enos is tightly composed within its context, similar to that of the chiasm of Mosiah chapter 5 verses 10 to 12. Conclusion. Some concluding gleanings may be proposed. The first, perhaps mundane and obscure, and the second, clearly important. First, Though not crucial to the beautiful lessons portrayed in this book, it can legitimately be asked what is meant by the opening colophon to the book, verses 1 and 2. Both John A. Twedness and Thomas W. McKay have previously described the introductory colophon of the book of Enos as composed of both verses 1 and 2. The statement in verse 2 seems to invite the reader not only to anticipate the recounting of a prayer, but to expect devotion of the entire book to an account of that one prayer. For there, Enos tells his readers that he will tell of the wrestle which he had before God. Enos chapter 1, verse 2. Yet with even a cursory reading of the entire book, the modern reader concludes that the account of Enos' prayer extends only from verse 3 through verse 18, the first half of the book, A, B, and C, plus the middle section, D. Taken as a whole, the balance of the text of the book, beginning with verse 19, which begins with the phrase, "...and it came to pass," Represents Enos' description of activities seemingly beyond the wrestle which he had before God before he received remission of his sins, Enos 1:2. Those activities include Enos's having gone about among the people of Nephi, prophesying of things to come, testifying of things which he had heard and seen, verse 19, and bearing record, verse 20. This does not, at least at first blush, seem to be a description of a wrestle before God for remission of sins, as verse 2 would lead the reader to expect. Indeed, no reference to prayer exists beyond verse 18 of the book. In verse 2, Enos tells his reader that he will recount the wrestle which he had before God before he received a remission of his sins. Yet, it is as early as verse 5 that he recounts that the voice of the Lord has already come to him, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee. And, as early as verse 6, that his guilt is already spoken of as having been swept away. Clearly, Enos desired to give us something more than a mere chronological account of activities that in time preceded his remission of sins. Consistent with Twedness' and McKay's identifications of verses 1 and 2 together as the one colophon for the entire book, I suggest that when the book is viewed in light of that apparent fact, the reader must deal with the significance of it. If verse 2 is part of the colophon, and if the colophon is intended to introduce all of Enos's book, Why is the topic promised in verse 2 seemingly exhausted by verse 6 and verse 8? The activities set forth in verses 19 to 27 seem to be prompted by the areas of concern described in the prayer and God's answers to that prayer, as recounted in verses 3 to 18. And those activities set forth in verses 19 to 27 seem to be set forth roughly in an order that is the reverse of the order in which they are recounted in the prayer. Element 1, personal redemption, verses 3 to 8. Element 2, concern for the Nephites, verses 9 to 11. Element 3, concern for the Lamanites, verses 11 to 14. Element 4, the covenant concerning the record, verses 15 to 18. Element 3 prime, concern for the Lamanites, verse 20. Element 2 prime, concern for the Nephites, verses 21 to 24. Element 1 prime, personal redemption, verses 25 to 27. Enos' prayer surely did not end with the Lord's first communication, verses 5 to 8, that announced his redemption from sin, but it continued on through the remaining three communications through verse 18. Enos recounts the essence of his entire life, the main activities of his life, verses 19 to 27, in light of that one prayer and in light of the Lord's answers to that one prayer, verses 3 to 18. Perhaps all of the activities of his life's work All of the labors prompted by the three answers given by the Lord to his prayer, all of the struggles, all of the testifying, and all of the preaching and prophesying did indeed precede his ultimate remission of sins, as predicted in verse 2, and reported, perhaps only in part, in verse 6. Maybe the truly effectual, eternal remission of sins, which he predicts in verse 2, is not only the forgiveness of sins and the sweeping away of guilt recounted in verses 5 and 6, but also the rest he anticipates in verse 27, after all his strugglings of a lifetime, after all his rejoicing, with having declared the word all his days, and after all his envisioned blessings in the mansions of his father, after having been wrought upon by the power of God, that he must preach and prophesy unto the people. Perhaps this reflects one of the lessons taught us by Ezekiel. See chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, and chapter 33, verses 7 to 9, concerning the delivery, too, of the soul of the watchman. From these observations, it would appear that the colophon is rightly identified as comprising both verses 1 and 2, strengthening the notion that if the colophon accurately describes the whole book, then Enos perhaps has, in a deeply meaningful way, told his readers by means of his entire text of the wrestle which he had before God before he received a remission of his sins. He then enhances that description with an account of his whole life's experience, not told merely as a chronological progression of events, notwithstanding he uses the phrase, it came to pass, but as a description of all the activities of his life, prompted by the Lord's answers to his prayerful yearnings. Apparently, the progression of Enos' narrative moves not only chronologically toward, but also deeper into his quest for an ultimate and an eternal personal redemption. It seems that the focal point of his own personal immortal redemption hinges on the central role Christ played in satisfying his main stated desire, redemption of the Lamanites through ultimate preservation of the record of the Nephites. His charity for others was the means by which he merited God's ultimate charity toward him. It should be noted that within the bounds of his book, Enos quotes the Lord a total of seven times. Verses 5, 8, 10, 12, 15, 18, and 27. The first two quotations, verses 5 and 8, seem to be grouped into one communication concerning Enos' personal redemption, forming a part of verses 1 to 8, a span of verses introduced by the phrase, Behold, it came to pass, verse 1. That first quotation, verse 5, balances against the last quotation, verse 27 an anticipated statement which he attributes to the Lord in the future, which correspondingly constitutes a part of Enos's repeated account concerning his own salvation, verses 25 to 27. The final span of verses, verses 25 to 27, is also introduced by the phrase, and it came to pass, verse 25. The next quotation, verse 10, Part of the section concerning the Lord's promised visitation upon Enos's Nephite brethren balances against a span of verses, verses 21 to 24, in which the unfaithful Nephites are indeed visited of the Lord. A span of verses introduced by, and it came to pass, verse 21, and lacking a quotation from the Lord, perhaps to highlight the Nephite people's stiff-neckedness. The next quotation, verse 12, forms part of a span of verses, verses 12 to 14, introduced by, and it came to pass, verse 12, which likewise seems to balance against a span of verses, verses 19 to 20, which lacks a quotation from the Lord, perhaps likewise to emphasize the result of the Lamanites' wrath and hatred. And as to the two central quotations, verses 15 and 18, set forth in a span of verses introduced by wherefore, verse 15, the first contains the central phrase of the book, verse 15, and the second serves to conclude the prayer, being set forth at the major division of the book, verse 18, between Enos' prayer and his life's labors. More important, perhaps, is a lesson about the value of the Nephite record and its role in redemption. The lesson concerning Christ's power to redeem those who obey his teachings as contained in the Nephite record is a lesson not unique to Enos. Nephi knew that the record of the Jews could save a nation from perishing in unbelief. Enos, too, knows that the Nephite record can play such a redemptive role for the Lamanites. True, Enos' prayer and his efforts are first directed in each respective half of the book to the salvation of his own people, the Nephites. But element C prime, verse 20, includes the phrase, destroy us, an indication of the destruction of the Nephites, in stark contrast to the use of the phrase, not be destroyed, in element C, verse 13, an indication of the survival of the Lamanites. And Enos' prayerful request at the center of the book centers on preservation of the Nephite record, a request expressed both in anticipation of the possible destruction of the Nephites and in hopes of the eventual survival of the Lamanites. Taking a cue from the centrality of the experience he recounts in verses 15 and 16, It can probably safely be said that Enos' charitable concern for the spiritual survival of the Lamanites through preservation of the Nephite record did indeed rival his concern for the spiritual and physical survival of his own people, the Nephites. Enos sought and obtained his own personal redemption from sin. And from that he developed a desire that both the Nephites and the Lamanites obtain their own redemption. The central role of the Lord Jesus Christ in responding to the strugglings and the labors of this prophet and those of his people is reflected in Christ's own divine desire that God's children be redeemed. That is characterized by the Lord's four communications to Enos. 1. Thou shalt be blessed. Verses 2 to 8. 2. I will visit thy brethren. Verses 9 to 11. 3. I will grant unto thee according to thy desires, which are that the Nephite record be preserved for the salvation of the Lamanites. Verses 12 to 14. And 4. Ye shall receive it in answer to Enos' desires. Verses 15 to 18. Charity is the pure love of Christ, Moroni chapter 7 verse 47, being that same love for God's children that Christ himself possesses. See Ether chapter 12 verses 33 to 34. Keeping in mind that the central phrase of the book of Enos is the phrase, in the name of Christ, we can perhaps better appreciate that, indeed, Enos had first-hand experience with the doctrine that whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, and desiring the redemption of God's children, Enos's brethren, is indeed a paramount good, in faith believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you, keeping in mind that the central phrase of the book of Enos is the phrase, in the name of Christ, we can perhaps better appreciate that indeed Enos had first-hand experience with the doctrine that whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, and desiring the redemption of God's children, Enos's brethren, is indeed a paramount good, in faith believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you, Moroni chapter 7, verse 26. Enos shows us clearly that we have the Book of Mormon today in great part because of the unwavering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ manifest by the ancients, including among them Enos. As Lehi had said to his son Joseph, quoting that ancient Joseph who had been carried captive into Egypt, so can it be said of Enos himself and of all the other prophets like him, who are responsible for the preservation of the Word of God for our day. quote Because of their faith, their words shall proceed forth out of my mouth unto their brethren, who are the fruit of thy loins. And the weakness of their words will I make strong in their faith, unto the remembering of the covenant which I have made unto thy fathers, end quote. Second Nephi chapter three, verse twenty one. The text, in one sense, seems to reflect the classic Book of Mormon pride cycle. Helaman chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. The Lord blesses and prospers his people. They become proud and sinful because of their ease. The Lord chastens the people, and they humble themselves, repent, and are blessed. Enos expresses concern more than once, not only that his own people might be destroyed if they fall into transgression, but also concern that the Lamanites too might similarly be destroyed for the same reason. See verses 13 and 14. The two peoples are both on the cycle. The Nephites seemingly are in the stage of enjoying blessings, seeking diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God, and able to till the land, enjoy all manner of grain and fruit and flocks of herds and the like. But for some reason... They are not successful, verse 20. The Nephites, so seemingly blessed, have among them prophets whom they do not heed, verse 23, which may be the reason they are not successful in their efforts to redeem the Lamanites, verse 20. Perhaps the Nephites are in the pride stage of the cycle between prosperity and wickedness. The Lamanites, on the other hand, are seemingly already at the wickedness stage and are entering into the punishment stage, verse 20, fixed on hatred and being a wild, ferocious, and bloodthirsty people. Quote, And I saw wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites in the course of my days, end quote, says Enos, verse 24. Perhaps verses 20 to 24 are structured simply on the themes mentioned here rather than on words and phrases. The book of Enos is concerned with yearning for potential happiness and joy and for eternal and temporal welfare and redemption of Enos himself, of his people the Nephites, and of their brethren the Lamanites. But notwithstanding his prayers and efforts and labors on behalf of the Nephites, and his and his people's struggles on behalf of the Lamanites, Enos alone is left assured of those eternal blessings of joy, confidence before God, and redemption of his soul. He desired eternal life and the joy of the saints, verse 3, and eventually for his prayers and efforts was at least himself assured of eternal rest, eternal blessings, and eternal life, verse 27. The listener is invited to read the appendix in the published versions of this paper. Stephen Kent Ehat is a California attorney who researches and writes state and federal appellate court briefs for other California attorneys. He has been a student of chiasmus since 1973. He and his wife, Janine, moved to Utah in 2001 and live in Linden, Utah. They are the parents of five sons and have 21 grandchildren. This has been a recording of Centered on Christ, the Book of Venus Possibly Structured Chiastically, by Stephen Kent Ehat, published in Interpreter. A Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 58, 2023, read by Stephen Kent Ehat. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.